Thanks, Hilt. Um, I have a question for you guys. How can you tell the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? Well, that depends whether you see it in a while or later. Such a dad joke, right? I'm in that dad joke category because I turned 50 in May. Woo! But I can still jump. <laughs> it's uh, a wonderful privilege for me to be here this morning. We uh, love Hilton Jin dearly, like you are close, beautiful friends. We love spending time with you. So thanks for inviting us and yeah, just for your friendship. So I just want to say that. And then to all the people online, I've trained and worked for 30 years as an actor, and one of the things I don't do is look in the camera. That's the worst thing you can do. So I'm going to look in the camera now and say hi to you, welcome, but after that, I'm probably going to forget, because this is just how my life works, is you never, ever look in the camera. They call it the fourth wall, and uh, when you watch a movie, you don't want to know that they know you there. So that's how that works. But um, let us pray, and then, and then I'll get started. Father... You are gracious, you are compassionate, Lord. Lord, you are truthful, but you're also merciful. Lord, you judge us, but you also love us. And Lord, no one is as fair as you. No one is as gracious as you. And Lord, we see accumulation of all of that in one act, and that was Jesus on the cross, where literally he died for us, where literally he took the judgments and the punishment for us so that we could be free. And so I pray today that these words, this talk, will be a contribution to the work that you already begun, Jesus. That, Lord, I won't stand in your way, because I know your heart, your compassion, and literally your excitement to speak with your people is far greater than I can ever imagine, and I'm excited. But it's not even close to a match. So I pray that you'll come with your spirit and open up hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hilton and I spoke about uh, what you guys have been delving into this year so far, and it's truth, okay, talking about truth. And one of the things when I talk to friends, family, to Hilton and other friends, it seems that truth is at a massive premium at the moment. It just seems so rare. It's like, like rare diamonds or rare gold. Where do you find truth? And I think part of the reason is, as you all know, we've just been through what, 600 and something days of this lockdown pandemic situation, and if that's not enough, some Russian guy starts a war with a country that didn't look for trouble with him, and even saying that right now, some people in the room might go, that's not really a war. Other people might go, no, that's horrible. You know, you talk about the vaccine, tons of people in the room might go, that's bad. Like, you know, I, I knew th there were people in my mom's complex who even they checked it with a magnet to see whether the vaccine magnetizes you, you know. So, and even that. And so there's all, and then throw in social media, and every Tom, Dick, and Harry has an opinion on Twitter, and what they say on Twitter they absolutely believe is the ultimate truth. So there's just so much information and so much confusion. That's why truth has become a premium. How can you know that things are true? You know, so it, it is something that, that is contentious. So I'm really hoping today that I can open up a few things about what sort of in the world passes as truth or how you can, you know, know truth or whatever, and then 
going to the Bible, going to who Jesus is, who calls himself the truth. He's never pointing to the truth. He's saying, I am it. You know, every other religion, every other philosophy points to a truth. Jesus is the only one that ever said, I am the truth, which kind of, there's a clue there. Okay. And then the other thing that I just want us to quickly look at is the word epistemology. Does anybody know what that, I didn't know what that word meant, but um, I listened to a few talks for somebody who exposed it. Does anybody know the word epistemology? Okay, so here's what epistemology means. It is important what you believe. That is important. But it's also equally important how you came to believe what you believe. And that's what epistemology means. Is how did you end up believing what you believe? Where does it even come from? You know, a lot of the times we talk about, uh, you know, the culture we, we grew up in, right? And we say we're independent thinkers, especially teenagers, sorry, teenagers, you know, you've learned some things in life and you feel independent of your parents, but half the time what you don't know is that the culture you're in, you're just a reflection of that culture without even knowing it. So that's why a word like epistemology is really important to understand. How did you come to believe what you believe? So jumping ahead, one of the things I want to look at are some worldviews of how people end up getting to a truth, or the truth that they believe. And one of the things, and you know, I hope that this makes sense to you, but one of the things that I've observed, especially on social media and a lot of MTV interviews or movie stars and musicians, whatever, fashion models, they all talk about living my truth. I'm just gonna live my truth. You guys identify with that? When people talk about, I'm just gonna live my truth. But I'm asking, like, what even is that? Like, what is your truth? And can that work as a worldview for knowing truth? Can we function as a community and a society? Can we function as a country? And then even bigger, can we function as a world if everybody says, hey, dude, I'm just going to live my truth. I'm just going to live my truth. Because here's one of the things that Jesus said when he was describing the human condition. He said this, I've come to open blind eyes. I've been anointed to do this. This is my job. I've come to open blind eyes, I've come to open deaf ears so that you can hear, and I've come to set hearts free. And in one moment, Jesus describes the human condition. You're blind, you're deaf, and your heart's captured. So, I ask you, how in the world can you live from your truth when you're blind, deaf, and your heart's captured? And, and even more so, how can you come up with a truth if you don't even know that you're blind and that you're very confident in your blindness and your deafness and your capturedness? That you don't even know that you're a reflection of a culture. I love what uh, Tim Keller quoted. He said this. Um, I just want to find it. Oh, here we go. Today we believe that we can create our own identity through our own free choices. We may think we are being true to ourselves when we shed the constraints of traditional values and morality. Ah, oh, my parents are old-fashioned, or the, the previous generation's old-fashioned. They don't know what they're really talking about. But in reality, we are simply allowing a new community to tell us who we are. So it's very shaky ground to operate from a worldview of, I'm just going to live my truth. Because the thing that you've got to do with something like that, if you're going to say you live my truth, you've got to take it to the end. 
you got to say, what is the ultimate result of living your life that way? It's very lacking in a little group social setting. Say, I'm just going to live my truth, and everyone must have shut up and not disagree with me. But you've got to take it to the end. Because, you know, 70, 80 years ago, there was a party called the Nazi party with a leader called Adolf Hitler, and his truth was Jews aren't really people. And for the Jews, the truth was, no, we are really people. Well, it cost them six million of their lives. That was his philosophy. That was his belief, right? And they absolutely acted on that belief. And so as you can see in a, in a really, and I understand that's, that's an extreme example, um, but it does paint a clear picture of what can happen. Another uh, example of living my truth is in Galatians 5. I just want to quickly look it up here. I just love uh, Galatians 5 from the message. Um, and what I love about the scripture just gets to the heart of what it really means when you say, I'm going to live from my truth. So he writes here, Paul writes here, and it's translated from the message, Galatians 5 verse 19, it says, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Now, it sounds super sophisticated when you say, I'm going to just live my truth, Right? But really what it is underneath all of that is I'm just trying to get my, this is my worldview. This is the way I want to live, and I'm just going to live it that way, and everybody has to be happy with it. So let's look at what kind of life develops out of it. It says here, your life becomes repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs, for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved. I just want to stop at that one real quick. You know, when you're living your truth and you're not caring for your community or anybody else outside of you, you develop an inability to love others but even more hectic, you develop an inability to receive love so that even if Jesus walked into the room, you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't be able to see, receive that kind of love. So it's really important that the epistemology of why you believe what you believe is explored because it has hectic consequences. I'm going to quickly read Romans 8, and I'll get back to the scripture. Romans 8, 5 to 8 puts it this way, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This scripture in Galatians 5, in traditional translations, talks about living from the flesh, which is, I'm getting my own way all the time. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, for to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Can you now understand what we're talking about? Knowing what you believe and why you believe it is a matter of life and death. And I'm not exaggerating. It's there, right there in the scriptures. Right there in the scriptures. And it looks super cool when you talk about, hey, I'm living my truth. Oh, gosh, that guy's got a voice in the industry. He's clever. He's got his, he's got his stuff together. But there's this issue of blindness, deafness, and your heart being captured. How can you trust that? How can you trust that? Okay, let's keep going. Because here's the thing that is so relevant in current culture. It says here, a brutal temper in Galatians 5, and an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes, 
divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, and the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. To me, when I read that, I thought to myself, my word, where have I seen that? Cancel culture. And you cancel people you don't even know. You know, they cancel people they know nothing about. They don't know their motivation. They've never asked them, what did you really mean when you said that? Just cancel, boom, depersonalize everyone into a rival because it's my truth, my agenda, boom. Anyone who doesn't agree with me, cancel them. It's become crazy. And I, Lee and I were talking about it the other night, and we were just saying, man, we're both feeling such a burden just for feeling hopeful and living in this world because this is mad. You know, where's hope going to come from in this current culture? Because Paul continues here, and he says this, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. But this isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. You know, it's one of the things I've noticed is everyone has become, well, first for the last two years, they were like endocrinologists, right? They were all like viral specialists and everybody had an opinion. Now everyone's like a world politician and knows exactly when, who should fight and who shouldn't fight. It's nuts. And that is funny to me. But the thing that isn't so funny is the amount of conversations I've been in with the people in my world, and I leave, and there's a spirit of strife. And what does the Bible say? Where the spirit of God is, there's peace. And so I'm asking you the question, is this the hill you want to die on? You know, if someone's going to come to me, at me about Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm dying on that hill. Because <laughs> he died on the hill for me. But you're going to come to me with an argument about, and you know nothing about science because you haven't got a degree in it either. And are we going to have a contentious and spoil the meal? I, I know peeps in my world that the, the span, families are split. Oaks have gotten divorced over this. And I'm going, is that the hill you're dying on? It's, it's madness, right? Okay, so let's move on. So there's another um, scripture that I just want to quickly read before I continue. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to them, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What I just quickly want to highlight, the way means there is a way. When you become a disciple of Jesus, there is a way you follow. And it's like Eugene Peterson's book's title says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. As you follow the way, as you know him, he's the truth. It leads to life. You don't follow the way. You get deceived. Because remember one thing that Jesus said about Satan. He's the father of lies. He's the inventor of lies. And I remember a therapist, a psychologist once said to me, you know, when she speaks to people, and they're confused about life, and they're not sure what to believe and how to believe it. She says, at that very point of the confusion, it's exactly where the devil's operating. That's exactly his mission, to cause strife in people's life. That's why he would do anything for you not to follow the way, to not know the truth. And I'm not just mean a bit of information. I'm talking about a person, a truth person, which leads to life. We just read in Romans, follow the flesh leads to death. Follow Jesus leads to life. 
Now, the next worldview that I want to just quickly jump in to and, and not spend a ton of time on it, because it can get complicated, uh, and I love reading books, so even for me it gets complicated, but it's the whole thing of, okay, in celebrities and actors and musicians and all that sort of social media world, it's the my truth kind of movement, you know, I'm living it for my way. Then we move over to the university guys and the scientists, and their big thing is, well, the only way you can know truth, the only way you can know reality is through empirical evidence, okay? Made real simple, empirical evidence is something in a lab that you can test, you can measure it, you can know it's real, you can repeat that experiment over and over again, and the result is it's without a doubt, okay? So DNA testing. It's brilliant, and I'm not knocking. Look, here's the thing that you must understand right up front. I'm not knocking science or empirical evidence because those are things God invented and has given it to us as gifts. What I am contentious with is when you make science and empirical evidence God. When you say science and empirical evidence is the way, the truth, and the life. No, it's not. But unfortunately, people are using it that way. I mean, we know that DNA testing is awesome because if there was a perpetrator at a crime scene and they find his DNA or her DNA there, then we can pretty much, without a doubt, because remember in court, if you want to find someone guilty, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt. Okay? So when it comes to God, and I as a Christian believer say God exists, the very next sentence the, the, the atheist will say to me, and I've seen it online and I've experienced it online, is, well, prove it. But don't just prove it anyway, improve it empirically, without a doubt. And I go, man, you got me there, Mr. Atheist. I can't. It's not possible to prove God empirically. But I have a question for you. Prove that he doesn't exist empirically. Aha. Now we have a problem. Because I know you can't do that either. So then how do we believe? How do we know what is true? Because someone like Richard Dawkins, he's a famous biologist, he lives in England, and he's probably the most famous sort of aggressive new atheist guy. And his worldview is, and I'm not being unfair to him, but he, because he's written these books, is that all that we see physically, he's a, what they call a materialist. So all that we see is all there is. No soul, no afterlife, no heaven, no spirit. All that there is is slime plus time, lucky mud, and this is the result. Okay? And that's how he knows truth. And I'm like, mm, I don't know so much. So I'm going to share a story with you real quick about an exchange I had with a friend on Facebook just to kind of illustrate the point um, of why you can't just say empirical evidence is the only thing that's out there. Because if we're going to be intellectually honest with each other, if they is no way, and, and, and trust me on this, there is no way that you empirically can prove God because God has not allowed that to happen that way. Can't put him in a box. So therefore, it also means if we're going to be intellectually honest, there is no way that you can prove he doesn't exist empirically. Okay? So scientifically, without a shadow of a doubt. Because trust me, if there was a way, someone would have found it. Right? But they haven't, and they won't. So... I remember a little while ago, I was reading a book by um, the New Testament scholar, theologian, and historian Tom Wright, and it's called The New Testament and the World. It's a 10,000-page book. It's massive, and so I've been sludging through that thing for a few years now, and I came across this one quote, and it so excited me that I posted it on Instagram, okay, and this is the quote. He says, 
While Adam's exile, so remember Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. While Adam's exile from Eden meant death. And death was a consignment to nothing. Nothingness was the God's amphitheater for staging a new creation. So if death is nothing, it is no match for the God who makes things come from nothing. The dead might be asleep. There might be almost nothing at all. But hope lived on within the covenant in which Yahweh had promised to be the God of the living and not the dead. I mean, I, I, I felt so encouraged and, and lifted up by that and just went like, man, our biggest enemy is death. It can end everything. It can every hope, every dream. You know, when you lose someone close to you, it's over, it's done. It's like you can't go and find them, you can't, nothing. It's just so over. But here God says, it's not a match. It's not a match for me. So I posted it. Then I had a friend comment on it, send me a private message on Facebook. Let me get to that private message real quick. So, <laughs> this was fun. So he wrote this. He said, hello, can death ever be a consignment to nothing if the soul is eternal? Souls, with a capital S, always returns to the source, capital S. Okay? So I said to him, well, what do you mean souls always return to the capital S source? So he said, we come from consciousness, capital C, we are energy beings moving around in a physical body. And if you're not following, don't worry, it's okay. <laughs> I had to read it a few times to follow. What? When we die, the energy, soul, essence, returns to our pure energy state back to consciousness, capital C, equals to capital source. So I thought, okay, fair enough. So I wrote back, I said, what is the empirical evidence you base this truth claim on? Because what he said there is not so much, it's, I mean, it is important what he said, but what's even more important for me is it's a truth claim. you making a claim. you stating it as if it's fact and as if it's truth. I said, do you have empirical evidence to prove that? And he said, quantum physics. The fact that all in the universe is frequency and vibration, which is not wrong. It is science. It's, everything vibrates. Everything is, you know, water has a different, ooh, water has a different vibration to this perspex with different vibration. It's just molecules. We know that. We saw that in science school, okay? So he's not telling me anything new. Quanta, the fact that all in the universe is frequency and vibration, check out Nikola Tesla's work in Einstein. Also add to that my own experience with clients and conversations with their dead relatives. Also, my body work, pure energy, there's an energy web that connects everything. Also, read this person and that person and that sort of thing. So I wrote back to him and I said, well, this is not empirical evidence. It's not. It's not empirical evidence. It's a belief. And then I told him a story. I said, I'm sure you remember my dad's operation when he had a heart attack. So when I was 17 years old, I got home one night. I was a little bit late. And I got in the house and my brother almost clapped me on the side of the head. Why are you late? Where were you? Just before cell phones and social media and stuff. So they didn't know where I was. I said, hey, Bree, what's going on? Like, why are you so content? And my mom said, dad's had a heart attack. He's nice to you. My dad was 48, which is two years younger than I am now, this present moment. Four kids. He was a doctor. ICU. He was in that ICU for about two weeks, hanging absolutely onto a thread of life. 
they were so concerned, but my mom didn't tell us kids how bad it was. And I should have known because I went to see him the next morning and he said, my friend, he, there was a friend, uh, Jacko, he used to play golf with, and he said, my friend Jacko was this year and he was in tears. And I thought, that's weird, why is he crying? And it's only later on that I realized how serious it was. His friend saw his friend dead, basically. Two weeks later, they had to fly him privately up to Bloemfontein to have a bypass operation. They had to stabilize him first. He had uh, like moisture on his lungs. I mean, it, it was touch and go. Then he goes into the operation. Uh, just before he goes into the operation theater, they, they willed him into have an angiogram. An angiogram is when they pump ink through you and into your heart, uh, your arteries and stuff to show where the blockages are. And my dad being a doctor said then, boys, he's looking at the monitor and he says, boys, pump the ink. And they're like, doc, we've pumped it twice. There's nothing there. He had no working arteries except for two were working less than 30%. So the cardiologist came and said to my mom, listen, I've got a piece of paper that you need to sign. He has less than 5% chance of surviving. I need to do an emergency operation. What I'm saying to you is he's going to die but we're gonna try. But you both need to sign it before we touch him. They duly sign without thinking. He goes into the operation room. As he's about to be wheeled in, another patient comes in. It's a young guy, age 35, a pastor actually of all people, who had a heart attack on a tennis court and they said, sorry, rule of thumb, youngest goes first. We've got to wheel you out again. Fortunately, this guy only needed a stint. So he was sorted. My dad's back in the operating theater. An hour later, they're going to the blood bank. What's happened? Where's the blood? And they go, oh, no, didn't you cancel the op? No, that is the other guy. So eventually the blood comes in. My dad had had two heart attacks between him coming from the angiogram to getting operated on. another. Two. He was done. Absolutely done. They finally start at 3 a.m. He dies 13 times. He comes back at 10.30. I think it was about 9.30, 10.30, around about there. The nurse says, phone his wife because he's weird. He's smiling and he's happy. People in these conditions usually come out very stressed, very, very scared. And it's, it's an ordeal to have your chest sawn open and your heart operated on. And your whole leg cut open to get veins so they can do bypass here. And he's written stuff. Now, he can't speak because he's got a pipe in his throat. It's called an endotracheal pipe. It helps you breathe with a hot lung machine. And he's doing this to the nurse. And she goes, oh, you want to write? You know, brings one letter at a time. I've actually got photographs of that piece of paper on my phone. I'm silly. I should have done the media team so you guys could see it. But what he wrote was, he wrote, um, love wife, love kids, pray for our leg, saw Jesus angel, 5 a.m., Wednesday morning. So now for four days, I wonder what's going on. So now you guys know I wrote that book, The Vagabond. So while this is going on, I'm lost at sea for three days without having told my parents. But that's another story for another day. This is what was going on now, 17. So finally, when he can speak, he says to them, when the, when, the, when the anesthetic came in, black, boom. He was just done, gone. And then he said he heard like a loud crack, like lightning. And he said he looked, and it was him lying there. Now my dad's got two medical degrees. He's not a nutcase. He clearly saw himself lying there, and he said, I was out of my body. I was above everything. And I looked up, and there was this nine-foot-tall being standing in front of me. 
And he said it looked like the Jesus from his children Bible, children's Bible. He had like long brownish hair and a beard. And he said, Jesus. And this being said to him, no, I'm not Jesus. I'm an angel from him and I have a message for you. You're going to live. My dad, who's Afrikaans speaking, said, what does a silly Dutchman like me do? I just said, donkey. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the dealio. Like I said, my dad had two medical degrees. He knew exactly what he was signing. So that donkey had a lot more donkey in it than one would normally have. And he says he has no idea why he asked this question, but he just said, what time is it? And the angel said to him, it's 5 a.m. Wednesday morning. Now, my dad had been in ICU for two and a half weeks. He didn't know what month it was. Every half hour, they were checking. He was not compass mentors for almost all that time. And he knew the exact time, 5 a.m. Wednesday morning. And that's the thing. My mom said, yeah, I'm glad you saw an angel, but how did you know the time? He said, I asked. And then when the anesthetist heard it, her eyes went like this, because she said it was exactly 5 a.m. when the surgeon stood with, his heart, with your dad's heart in his hand and looked at the cardiologist and said, he's dead, there's nothing we can do. That cooled his heart. At that point, he was declared dead, exactly 5 a.m. And in that moment, the cardiologist, who happened to be a Christian, just said, I have a gut feel we should just go anyway. Because the, the cardiologist said, look, it's just jelly. There's nothing left. This is what should be a mus- muscle is just jelly. And he said, I think we should do it. And they did. They did, and that's when he flatlined another 13 times. Couldn't get him off the heart-lung machine to get his heart to beat on its own. Three weeks later, he does a test, and I've got a letter from the cardiologist, a photograph of the letter from the cardiologist on my phone, who said, I sat in my office, I threw my hands up in the air, and I said, praise the Lord, because this man's heart's beating like a fit athlete, and I have no idea how. It's medically not possible. My dad did die 21 years later, but they didn't think he was going to live for five minutes or five days. He lived another 21 years and his heart never gave him trouble again. He died of cancer. So I wrote my friend back and I said to him, the cardiologist had several medical degrees. The surgeon had several medical degrees. My dad had a couple of medical degrees. I, as a 17-year-old boy, will never forget how hard I cried when I saw him being wheeled in a wheelchair from the plane to where I was standing. I didn't even know why I was crying so hard, but I think... There's this beautiful saying, the heart knows reasons that the mind know not of. My heart knew I was seeing a dead man walking. He's the God of the living and not the dead. God doesn't speak to dead people. He makes dead people alive. Come on. So I wrote my friend back and I said to him, you know, I would never use that as empirical evidence to prove that God exists. It's not empirical evidence. What I will say to you is it's faith. The righteous shall walk by faith. That's how we know the truth. We read the Bible. We believe it by faith. God has set it up like that. So that we would be involved. There has got to be a step from our side to believe by faith. And he wrote me back. I've composed several responses and deleted them all because I realize that your response to anything I say will be that the only way that you believe is faith. My experiences, how I work with people, what I've learned over the last 20 years counts for nothing because faith. No empirical evidence, just faith. Maybe one day we will be able to sit in the same room and talk again. I I, I wrote him a response back and said, you know, I never said that. 
That's not what I said. I said, I, I, never, I said, what you're using as empirical evidence is not correct. You're using a belief of faith. All I want to do, and this was not a conversation about, oh, yay, I won. No. I'd be mad at you if you thought that I'm telling you the story to, to pretend like I won some argument. This is not about winning an argument. It's about loving my friend and saying to him, please, please know that there's some things in this life that you cannot know other than by faith. And God has set it up that way. It's so important that we know that. Okay? So now, the one thing, and who do we have faith in? We have faith in Jesus. I'm going to wrap it up because I think I'm out there. Am I? Okay, a few more minutes. Well, like Roger, no, the time's up. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Let me take a sip. I want to quickly see how this practically works out in our lives, okay? You guys still with me? It feels like you are. So it's good. It's lucky. We're having a nice time. So when Jesus, the, the truth, he's not even the truth teller, he is the truth, comes into your life, you need to be ready for him to turn it upside down. Okay? And I'm quickly going to tell you a story. I mean, we have the script. It's Mark 10, verse 13 to 52. You guys are on it. Eh? It's called the Mark and Sandwich. Theologically speaking, it's called the Mark and Sandwich. And basically, these stories didn't accidentally happen like this. They literally put them in the Bible to try and tell you something deeper than what is just on the page. The first story is about when Jesus, when the little kids come to Jesus. Just to save time, I'm just going to paraphrase it. The little kids come to Jesus and the disciples are, no, 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 we mustn't have the kids. And Jesus said, no, let the kids come. Let the kids come. Unless you believe like these kids, you won't see the kingdom. And what he's saying is, unless you come like, and just work with me, because I know there are naughty kids, but generally speaking, in my experience, when you're a little five-year-old, everything's amazing. You taste ice cream the first time, it's the best thing you've ever tasted. There's just such wonder there's no agenda in your belief. You're just figuring out how this works. Jesus is going, go back to the blank slate. When you're born again, come to me like a child. Come to me without the assumptions of adulthood. Okay? The next story is this rich young ruler. And I love the way uh, the scripture puts it. This, this man comes running towards Jesus. I mean, he's got a passion for Jesus, we think. And he comes running and he's on his knees and he's like, Lord, Lord, what must I do to inherit him? I mean, you think this guy's got humility of note. He's falling on his knees before Jesus, and he says, Lord, Lord, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and, and Jesus says to him, have you, uh, have you kept the commandments? Let me just have it. Oh, I can't see it there. Have you kept the commandments, stuff like that? And he goes, yes, I have, since my youth. And, and then he calls him good teacher. And, I, and I, always, I remember when I was younger, I always used to think good teacher, and then Jesus goes, Jesus responds quite terse, and he says to him, nobody's good except God. I'm like, Whoa. But as I got older and I read more commentaries and I understood more from a theological point perspective what it meant was Jesus was exposing his motivation for calling him a good teacher because he's saying to Jesus, I have kept the law. I've not stolen. I've honored my mother and my father. I've kept all the commandments. I have kept, and he mentions them all. And Jesus actually says, have you done this, this, and this? And the guy's like, yep, I've done every single one of those ones. But the thing is, is that this guy had an attitude like a lot of us, and this is a thing that culturally seeps into our thinking. We think we can put God in our debt by good behavior. Paul says everybody falls short. You cannot in any way, shape, or form put God in your debt. 
I literally was having a conversation with a guy the other day that I was talking to, and he was saying to me, is there something I did wrong in my life that I'm suffering so much now? That God is punishing me in this way. And that thinking is, I can put God in debt. In, in basically, so God's goodness towards me is based on my behavior. No, 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 no. Don't deceive yourself. God's goodness towards you is based because God's good, not on your behavior. Because if it was on your behavior, hey, amigos, we'd be on our own. Because none of us have made the grade. So this guy comes with the assumption that he's basically saying, God, I've got this computer. I've got all these computer programs. What other program must I add to this thing to make it really lacquer? And Jesus goes, you've got to basically whoosh, the whole thing off the table. Because the next thing he says to him, knowing what was going on in his heart, and then the other thing you just remember in that scripture says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. And he says to this man, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And it says the man's face became downcast and he walked away because he had great wealth. Don't misunderstand that God is against rich, being rich or rich people. That, that is not what that is saying. The issue that God had as Jesus revealed it, he said this man worshipped money more than he worshipped God. And this man was proud of his record of not, you know, stealing, not committing adultery, honoring his money. But he broke the first commandment. He didn't worship God. He worshiped money. And what did Jesus say? The two most important commandments, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbors yourself. So when Jesus challenges him with loving God more than money, he starts wobbling, and then Jesus says, and then love your neighbors yourself, and he walks away. When Jesus encounters you, he'll go straight for the thing that you're the most offensive about, knowing that that's the very thing that's going to destroy your life. Okay? Peter and the other disciples, I mean, this just goes to show the culture. Because Peter and the other side, they freak out. They're like, oh my word, who can get saved? Because they also thought like this guy. Because they go, if this guy fails, we're done. And Jesus goes, look, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter says to him, yeah, but we've left everything. And Jesus goes, yeah, and you will know a reward. You'll have homes, you'll have family, you'll have community. But follow me. Then the next story, James and John, and I'm moving swiftly now. <laughs> the next story is James and John, two of his disciples that have been walking with Jesus for three years. They've been walking with Jesus. One would think they've learned some stuff, but they come to him and say, okay, where are the other oaks? Okay, no, they're not here. Okay, quick, now's our moment. Jesus, do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus, being gracious, says to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they go, Make us number one and number two in your kingdom when you're in your glory. Like, we basically want to be CEO, CFO. How's it? And Jesus goes, you don't know what you're asking for. And they go, no, no, we do know what we're asking for. And he says, can you drink my cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they go, yes, absolutely. And he goes, you will be. But just let me inform you, my dad's already decided who's going to be crucified next to me. They had no idea that's what they were asking for. As N.T. Wright points out, literally God had already decided who's going to be crucified with Jesus. These two numbnuts don't even know that that's what they're actually asking. Jesus goes, do you know what you're asking for? Yeah, yeah. But now here's the thing. We never Jesus in that story. We're always the numbnuts. 
okay? But then the other 10 hear about it, and they get upset. And they're like, no, no, we, we just, in Mark chapter 9, we discussed who's the greatest. These two oaks think they're the greatest. That's not right. Jesus says, guys, huddle up, huddle up, huddle up, huddle up. And this is what he says to them. You have so much worldly culture in you. You don't think like I do. You guys think if we can just get the top dollar position, then we can lord it over people and tell them how to do it. I, Lee and I lived in Los Angeles for 13 years. And one of the things I learned in Los Angeles is there's two levels of having money. The highest level is, and I'm not going to use the root word they would use, I'm going to translate it for you. And the translation is yes and no money. I can say yes and no to whatever I want. Anybody who comes into my life, I can either say yes or no. That's serious money, like Elon Musk money. Then the, the lower level is that that's my seat money. You go to a Lakers game and somebody lower than you sitting on your seat, you can tell them, get up. You go to a restaurant. I remember our, our, our pastor's wife there, she went to Soul Cycle. It's like a spinning type class. And she got there, she'd booked a, a, a cycle and she got there and they told her, no, it's not available anymore. And then while they're telling it's not available, some celebrity model arrived and they're pulling out the bicycle from storage to put there for this girl. I mean, that, that's my, my seat money, right? Now, what Jesus is saying is that you guys are gunning for that's my seat money or lord it over. He's, my kingdom is about serving people. It's about serving people. So a quick testament of my own life is I definitely, now that I look back at it, I definitely had some James and John in me going over to Los Angeles because I was sick and tired of the entertainment industry in South Africa. And we have a law from 1967 that still regulates us that we can't earn equity. I mean, it's a mayor. It's a really, it, it is a for real, for real tough situation in South Africa when it comes to the entertainment business. I'm like, I'm going to go to LA. Jesus is going to bless me and I'm going to come back here and fix it. I'm going to lord it over people and tell them how it is and bring God's kingdom. And God humbled me into the ground. I, instead of being a movie star, I ended up being a cab driver for three years. I ended up being a janitor in my church. This after having the best agents in the world. And then in 2018, he brought us back here. And you know, the difference is I used to go to set thinking, how is this going to enhance my career? How is this going to take me to the next level? How is this going to give me the right hand or the left hand of Jesus? Now I go to set and I say to myself, today, how are you going to love these people well? And that includes knowing my lines. It includes honoring my fellow performers. It includes being gracious and kind to the security guard who doesn't quite know their check-in. Or the caterer who messed up your order. Or the wardrobe person who didn't get the right outfit. What, whatever the case might be. People are watching. And I'm realizing that Jesus' priority is to serve. Not to lord. And it's going to be very hard for you if you don't understand that part. Your prayers change. The final story in this Mark and Sandwich is blind Bartimaeus. He's the kind of guy that we all miss in society, the guy you don't see in the mall, the guy you don't see on the side of the road, or the woman or whatever. Blind Bartimaeus is sitting there screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And eventually Jesus hears this guy and he says, bring him to me. And he says to him, exactly in the Greek, it's exactly the same phrase that he used with, um, with uh, James and John. And the phrase is this, what is it you want me to do for you? Okay. Now, just do a little quick thought experiment with me. Imagine Elon Musk, who's now, I think he's worth 250 billion, 300 billion. I don't even know what he's worth anymore. Imagine he comes into this room, picks you out and says to you, all my wealth, everything I have, what is it you want me to do for you? You have access to all of it. My word, uh, ice cream? Yeah, me. What are you going to say? 
Like you don't even know where to begin. Now, now he's not even a drop in the ocean when it comes to the, to the God of the universe. And what does this blind guy say to him? Look, everybody there can tell blind Bartimaeus has the name blind Bartimaeus because he's but he still offers him, what do you want me to do for you? Because maybe blind Bartimaeus thinks, maybe I've never had a wife. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Maybe I didn't have the right career. Maybe I didn't have kids. Maybe money. I mean, there's a million things, right, that we look to to give us what only God can give us, that any value. Blind Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And Jesus says, that is the answer. When I ask you, that's the beginning answer. When I ask you what you want me to do for you. Because that is acknowledging your human condition. You're blind, you're deaf, and your heart's captured. You want to know truth? Ask the man of truth to open your eyes to the truth. And how do you do that? You read the word. You pray. You stay in fellowship in the church. Guys, this is not a complicated thing. And that is a hill worth dying on. You actually are dying on hills that are not worth fighting. You don't even have a science degree. Pick your battles. I have friends who just, oh my word, they're not sleeping at night because of this stuff. And here you have Jesus, the master of the universe, the kindest, most loving person who wants to be with you, who has died to be with you, saying, hang with me and you'll know the truth. But not only that, you'll know peace. You'll know love. I've got a bit more, but I'm, I'm way over. So I'm going to wrap it up. But I want to thank you guys for listening. But before I do that, I, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for all of us. The prayer of blind Bartimaeus. Right, so let's, let's close our eyes. Father, I sense that you are operating deep in our hearts, Lord. Truth is always... It's, it's always one of the most painful things to receive, but it's always the thing that brings peace because it's literally receiving Jesus into us. Father, I pray for every heart here today that has heard your words, Lord, the words, your scripture, the words in your Bible. I pray, Lord, that they will have wisdom to pick the right hill to die on, to not swatted flies, Lord, that are just messing with them when there's this monster behind them trying to take him down. Lord, the distractions that social media and the world and news and fake news and all this stuff does to us, it's just it's craziness. I pray that you give them a passion for your word, a passion for understanding who you are, a passion for knowing you. And I pray like Paul prayed, that they will be rooted and established in your love. And I pray the prayer, Lord, of blind Bartimaeus, open our eyes, Father. Open our eyes so that we may have life and look at you who is life. In Jesus' name, amen.